0: Thank you. Oh, I hate having an introduction like that because then people expect you to be really good. So um, I'm, uh, I'm actually very excited about being with you on, uh, this morning because typically when I'm in a church on Sunday morning, I've got to catch a plane pretty quickly afterwards. My flight doesn't leave until after five, so I figure we got a lot of time. <laughs> They're all worried now. Actually, an elderly preacher once told me, blessed is he who is short of wind, for he will be asked to come again. So you you don't have to worry too much. Let's pray. Father, we ask that right now in this time together, as we look at Your Word, God, we ask that You would speak to our hearts by Your Word and by Your Spirit. Lord, implant in us the things that we need to more fully understand to accomplish Your plans and Your purposes for us. And God, we thank You that You'll do that because You're so very faithful. We ask it in the blessed name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about worshiping God in the hard times. Uh, It seems pretty obvious to me that all of us either have or and or at some time will walk through some difficult times. And those may vary in intensity depending on the person and the situation, but we're all going to face some difficulties in life. And I want to talk to us about worshiping God in the midst of those things. And I want to begin by contrasting in Scripture, from Scripture, two different reactions to the same scenario. Uh, I want to turn our attention to the Babylonian captivity. Uh, But I'm going to kind of set this up with a little historical background. Any time in history of the world, whenever one nation would come in and conquer another country, uh, another nation, another people, uh, what would happen is many of the conquered people would be taken back to the land of the conquerors, and they were made slaves. Now, some of the some of the brightest and the best might have been put into advisory positions, but most were simply made slaves. And we don't need to look very far into history at all, just into our own nation's history to understand what the lot of slaves was like. Whatever somebody else didn't want to do, the most difficult jobs possible, the most grueling things, those were the ones that were given to the slaves. And along with that physical labor, when one nation would conquer another nation... Besides the, the, the manual labor, the tasks, there was also a, a, a belittling, uh, a, an ongoing ridicule. After all, they, they, they wanted the people who had lost the battle to know they were the losers. And so they let them know through their words. So not only were they physically tried, but they were verbally tried over and over again. And so that's kind of the background to the Babylonian captivity. It was around just prior to depending on what historian you look like, look at it was just prior to 600 BC, that the Babylonians came in and took over the southern kingdom of Israel. The people were taken off into slavery, back to Babylon. Now, some of the most well-educated, you remember Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, were put into positions of, of giving advice. But most were simply made slaves. And it didn't matter what they did before. They could, have been, they could have been a farmer. They could have been a shopkeeper. Could have been a new mother. It didn't make any difference. One day you're doing whatever it is that you're doing. The next day you're a slave. Imagine, if you will, such a scenario. Whatever it is that you do in life, you're doing that. And the next day, you're someone's slave. And you now have to do whatever they tell you to do. What's your reaction? Are you sure that God is mad at you? Are you mad at Him? And can you, in the midst of such a scenario, still worship God? Those were the same questions I believe that the Israelites had to grapple with in their own lives. And it is against that backdrop that Psalm 137 was written. By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. It's exactly what we're talking about. They've been taken into captivity. They're remembering. They're in Babylon. They're remembering what it was like back in Israel. Israel. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. They have in a a symbol of resignation taken their musical instruments, their instruments of worship, and hung them up on the trees. We're not going to need these any longer. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. That mental torture, if you will. Can't you hear the, the Babylonians at that point? Hey, Israelites, why don't, you, why don't you sing us one of those songs that we've heard so much about? One of those songs about your, <laughs> your God? What would you do? How would you react to that situation? The very next verse tells us the reaction of the Israelites. And I think, honestly, this verse needs to be read with somewhat of a whine in it. How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I mean, can't you hear it? They gave up. They didn't do it. Could I suggest that that's exactly what they should have done? They should have taken those instruments off of those trees and they should have right then and there lifted their voices in a song of joy to their God. Oh, it may not have changed the outward situation but it would have changed their hearts. And that, my friend, would have changed everything. But they didn't. Instead, they left those instruments hanging on those trees. What a shame. Allow me a moment to contrast that with a very different reaction to the same scenario. Just prior to the Babylonian captivity, God raised up a prophet named Habakkuk. Israel at that point, the southern kingdom is really what we're talking about for those of you familiar with history. Israel was in crisis. Strife and contention were apparently very commonplace. Those who were in authority were dishonest, perverting justice. As a result, the law was paralyzed. Have you ever seen a movie where things just are not right in a nation, perhaps in a city, but in a nation where everything is turned upside down, where upstanding citizens are harassed and the, the lawbreakers go free. The government is so corrupt nobody understands what true justice really means. That's the scene that Habakkuk paints for us of Israel at this point in time. And Habakkuk is a a just man he's a righteous man and he knows that God is just and righteous and so he calls out to God change this situation do something here lord and we don't know we don't know from scripture exactly what kind of response Habakkuk expected from God when he prayed But I think it's safe to say that the response he got was nowhere close to what he expected. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that if the prophet had taken quill and parchment in hand and written the top 100 responses that he might have expected from God, that the one that he actually received wouldn't have been on the list. God assured Habakkuk that he knew what was going on and that he was about to take action. And he was sending the Babylonians to invade Israel. Surely the prophet must have misheard. Israel was bad, but Babylon was worse. Israel was evil, but Babylon was evil to the nth degree. This couldn't be right. And certainly Habakkuk had heard the stories of the other lands that Babylon had invaded. When their army came in, not only did they take people captive, but they took anything of any value at all. Everything was gone and the land was left devastated. The money, the produce, the livestock, it was all taken back to Babylon and what they left behind. The houses were destroyed. The fields were destroyed. The orchards were all damaged beyond repair. Surely this couldn't be what God was saying. But the prophet recognized the voice of the Lord and he knew that's exactly what was going to happen. And it is against that backdrop that the prophet Habakkuk makes one of the strongest declarations of worship found anywhere in Scripture. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Didn't matter what it looked like in the natural. The prophet said, I'm going to worship my God. Why? Oh, Why? Did the Israelites not take that attitude with them into captivity? Lift their voices in that song of worship to their God. Again, it may not have changed the outward situation, but it would have changed their hearts. And that would have changed everything. But they didn't. They left those instruments hanging on those trees. What a shame. Author and poet Evelyn Gunter said this, A cold November wind blew lazy snowflakes across the cemetery. I pulled the coat around me more tightly as I stood by a new mound. Summer flowers had been hardened by the frost. I knelt beside them with a sense of gratitude. Thank you, Lord, I whispered. Thank you for my family in heaven. I looked over at baby Samuel's small white stone. He was the first of my family to enter, ha- enter heaven. Then my attention came back to the nearest grave, unmarked as yet. It was the final resting place for my minister husband. The fresh sod, soon to be covered by snow, suggested hope, not despair. I was thankful, for I knew the second member of my family had been called into the presence of the Lord. A warmth filled my heart as I realized they were with Jesus, waiting to welcome me when my task would be done. I had a new sense of rejoicing in the blessed hope. Can you imagine such a scenario? kneeling in a cemetery looking at the grave of your departed infant and your recently departed spouse and rejoicing in the blessed hope that seems so backward to the way that we normally think and yet I think Evelyn Gunter understood something that we so often fail to recognize that regardless of what's going on that we can still worship God he is still loving he is still merciful he is still in control In the Old Testament, Job was a righteous and prosperous man with a large family. And in an instant, it was all gone. What happened? Job fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even in the midst of that difficult situation, Job worshipped his God. In his introduction to the book of Job in the message translation of the Bible, Eugene Peterson said this, Perhaps the greatest mystery in suffering is how it can bring a person into the presence of God in a state of worship full of wonder, love, and praise. Suffering does not inevitably do that, but it does it far more often than we would expect. You see, the reality is that whenever you and I are faced with a tragic situation in our lives, we can allow that thing to push us away from God or we can allow it to propel us toward Him. And every single time, make no mistake, every single time, it is our choice which one of those we're going to choose. Now I want to, in the next little while, offer you some practical how-tos. When I I told them yesterday in the seminar, when I was in seminary, the professor that taught us preaching and teaching told us over and over again, don't just tell people what to do, tell them how to do it. So I want to make this as practical as I possibly can for you this morning. So I'm going to give you a few very practical ways that we can make worshiping God reality in the hard times. And the first one is that we need to recognize that God and His grace are the source for all we do. We need to recognize that God and His grace are the source for all we do. Now, you might be sitting there right now and thinking, after all that I've just said, thinking, I know I should worship God in the difficult times but I don't so often. I'm a failure. And if I was politically correct, I would come alongside you in the midst of that scenario and put my arm around and say, oh, there, there, it's okay, but I've never gotten the hang of being politically correct. So rather than doing that, I would have to agree with you and say, you're right, you are a failure. But so am I. And that's why Jesus came to redeem failures like you and like me. Without His grace, we've got nothing. We need to keep turning back to the cross and recognize how much we need Him and His mercy in our lives. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Without Him, we don't have a chance. And so when you find yourself in those difficult times and your heart isn't there, Lord, forgive me bring me to that point that I can worship you that I can honor you even in the midst of this this difficulty you know I've had people tell me that God won't give us more than we can bear and I'd like to believe that I've even had people tell me that's in scripture can't find it oh it does say that God won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able that's very different than giving us more than we can bear see I think God regularly gives us more than we can bear To cause us to recognize how much we need Him. We need to recognize that God and His grace are the source for all we do. Secondly, we need to recognize that difficulties are a normal part of life. This is this is really different for us in our society. We have it instilled in us, not directly, but indirectly through all kinds of things that we hear and see all the time, that whenever something bad happens, it must, there must be something wrong. It's just not right. And, you know, as much as I appreciate the Sunday school lessons that I learned as a little boy, I think those Sunday school lessons often painted a very skewed perspective of life. Don't get me wrong, I think we need to hear about the, the great victories that the people of God won over and over. But when we think that that's all there is to life, we're missing it. A lot of life is just difficult situations. It's those patient, patience learning situations. Don't you love those? And we need to recognize that difficulties are just a normal part of life. There was a... Uh, a baby born in the early 1800s. Not long after she was born, she developed a a sickness they called the doctor. The doctor was out of town, so someone impersonating a doctor came instead and prescribed something that actually made the baby go blind. When she was just over a year old, her father passed away. Later, when she was older and married, her one and only child that she bore herself died in infancy. She lived during the Civil War. That must have been a tragic time in our nation's history. I can't imagine what it would be like for a blind person to live through the horrors of that war. And I would think that it would be very easy for someone who had had that type of a life to distance herself from God. To say I can't, I can't worship God. I can't imagine that He really cares about me in the midst of this. You know, the the average hymnal in the average tur- church today contains six hundred hymns. Take a dozen hymnals like that, stack them up, and you still won't equal the number of hymns that the blind lady Fanny Crosby wrote during her lifetime. Let me read you just one chorus from one song that Fanny Crosby wrote she said this, praise the Lord praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice oh come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory great things he has done does that sound like someone who has succumbed to the, the tragedies of life no Fanny Crosby recognized that difficulties are just part of life and we need to learn to deal with them and still worship God even in the midst of them. Thirdly, I'm going to give you four things just so you know how many, how far we're going here. Number three, understand true biblical joy. This is something that I think we miss very often in the church. Now, I want to tell you right here at the beginning that I'm going to be using joy and rejoicing kind of interchangeably. Rejoice is the verbal form of joy. We sing songs. We rejoice joy. It's how it comes out, if you will. All right. James chapter 1, verse 2. You're familiar with this passage of Scripture. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy. Somebody give me a, a definition or a synonym for the word pure in this context. Untainted, Good. Uh, I've heard unadulterated, the real essence, those kind of things. Consider it that kind of joy, untainted, the real thing, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Whew, that's different than how we think, isn't it? See, the problem is that we try to equate joy with happiness. They're not the same. Happiness comes from a, a a little short old English word hap, which means luck. Maybe you're familiar with another old English word, happenstance, which means circumstances that come to us by luck. That's the concept of happiness. Uh traffic wasn't bad on my way to work today, so I'm happy. I got an unexpected gift today, so I'm happy. The kids behave today, so I'm really happy. That's happiness, that's not joy. Joy goes deeper, it is a gift from God and nothing, real or imagined, can take it away without your permission. Romans 14, 17 For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but three things. Righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Where, where do you get righteousness? I, I'm going to decide today, I'm going to be righteous I'm just going to make that decision and do it, Right? No, it's a gift from God. How about peace? I'm going to steal myself up today and I'm going to have peace if it kills me. (laughs) Right? No, it's a gift from God. Jesus said, My peace I give unto you not as the world gives. It is a gift from God. And the same thing is true with joy. It is a gift from God. And nothing, real or imagined, can take it away from you without your permission. Uh, I I write a lot. And when I write, if I want to emphasize something... In my writing, I have typesetting tools that I can use to help people to, to recognize this is important. I can use boldface, I can use italics. You know when you see something like that, this is important. When the biblical writers were writing scripture, they didn't have those typesetting tools. So they would often use a simple literary device, repetition, to help get across the point that this is really important. Quick example, in scripture, whenever God speaks very often what he says is preceded by one of two words. Either either it is preceded by the word blessed or it is preceded by the word woe. You want to get a blessed word, you don't want to get a woe word. All right, everybody with me? Um, In Revelation, when the judgments are being poured out, it doesn't say woe. It doesn't say woe, woe. It says woe, woe, woe. You don't want to be on the receiving end of that one. All right repetition to get across the point this is really important here with that under you if you read scripture, look at that you'll see it over and over with that understanding. Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, he said this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. In the same letter, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. What he's saying is, Hey, you guys, you need to get this joy thing. You need to rejoice. You need to understand how how important joy really is. Okay, Tom, we got it. That's the concept that Paul is trying to get across here. Repetition to make sure that we really understand joy, that rejoicing is important. And think about this. Where was Paul when he wrote those words? He was in prison. See, that changes the whole scenario in my mind. This is not the Apostle Paul lounging poolside at the Jerusalem Marriott. This is the Apostle Paul in prison saying, guys, if I can do it in here, surely you can do it out there. Rejoice! Joy is a gift from God. We need to recognize that. Nothing can take it away without our permission. And then finally, keep your eyes on the goal. See, earth really isn't our home. Somebody a while back said that Christianity really is an otherworldly religion. It's not about the here and now. Oh, it's partly about the here and now, but it's mostly about what we've got waiting for us on the other side. And we need to recognize that. 1 Corinthians 15:19 if in this life only we have hoped in Christ we are of all people most to be pitied it's not about the here and now our citizenship scripture says is in heaven i've got a green card to work for a little while here but that's it my real home is on the other side and i need to recognize that do you remember do you remember when jesus sent out the 70 and they came back and they were just so excited because of the miracles that they had seen and I don't know what they saw, but it doesn't give us all of the specifics, but they must have seen some amazing things. They, they were rejoicing when they came back. But do you remember what Jesus said to them? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As much as those miracle kind of things are exciting, the real joy is that our names are written in heaven. That we're going to spend eternity with God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, Scripture says. A number of years ago, my uh, my wife read that passage and she was asking God to show her. What, what does that mean? How, how does that play out in everyday life? When she asked God that, we happened to be in the middle of a major remodeling project at our home. Actually, we were putting an addition onto the home. And there was a, a sheet of clear plastic separating the uh, existing structure from the new Uh, And any of you that have ever gone through that process, you know that that piece of clear plastic is only there for looks. It has no actual value at all. My wife is a fastidious housekeeper. Everything has to be just so. Uh, Weekly, complete, top-to-bottom house cleaning uh, added to that uh, regular spot cleaning throughout the week. Um, Our house is kept immaculate. It is a trait that she inherited from her full-blooded Dutch mother. It is a trait that has often been tested by her very messy husband. In the midst of that remodeling project, one evening she had just finished her house cleaning. She was making supper, had just set the table, and the sun was shining in the window, and it was illuminating all of that airborne drywall dust that was now settling onto the plates that she had just put onto the table. And rather than getting upset about it, instead she chose to look out through that clear plastic and imagine what it was going to be like when it was all finished. And imagine what a blessing that was going to be for our family. She pictured it all done. set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We're going to have trials and difficulties here in this life, but we've got something far greater waiting for us on the other side. And we need to recognize that. We will face difficult times in life. And as I said earlier, every single time it's our choice. We can allow those things to push us away from God or we can choose to let them propel us toward Him. It's always our choice. And I want to encourage you this morning, rather than being like the Israelites when they were in captivity, and leaving their musical instruments hanging there and lamenting, what we need to do is to lift our voices and say, God, I'm going to worship You even in the midst of this difficult time. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we have heard Your Word and God, as usual, we've been convicted by Your Word. Lord, too often we, we have let those difficult situations pull us away from You instead of propelling us toward You. Lord, forgive us. But God, we ask that from this time forward that You would plant the truth of what we've just heard deeply into our hearts and our minds. When we get into those situations where we might compromise these things, God, we ask that You bring them back to our remembrance, cause us to choose the right path, to go in the right direction. God, we desire to worship You even when we're in the midst of of difficult situations. And so, Father, we ask that You, by Your Word and by Your Spirit at work within us, would cause that to become more and more of a reality in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives as we live out our days before You. And Lord, we thank You that You'll do that because You're so very faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.